Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariya on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim alhamdulillah Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi alladhina istafa khususan ala sayyidir rusuli wa khatamil anbiya wa ala alihi alaskiya wa ashabihi alatqiya amma ba'd Today we gather to discuss and remember the great legacy and story of a legendary companion of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam whose knowledge is so widespread that it is difficult to find a single muslim that doesn't know his name so we begin with a line of poetry that captures the essence of what legacy actually is sayabqa al khatt ba'di fi al kitab wa tabla al yad minni fi al turab fa ya He says, سَيَبْقَ الْخَطُّ بَعْدِي فِي الْكِتَابِ What I have written shall remain. What I have written down during my life, it shall remain. وَتَبْلَ الْيَدُ مِنِّي فِي التُرَابِ While my hand that actually wrote it disintegrates in the grave. As the insects are eating away at me and I've been buried away, transitioning from this world to the next, I come to an end but my words continue sayabqa al khatt ba'di fi al kitab wa tabla al yad minni fi al turab fa ya so oh i hope the one who reads my words da'ali bil khalasi min al hisabi he prays that i am freed from any accountability with allah on the day of judgment when you see my name when you see my words just direct a dua towards me. So we make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showers His infinite mercy on Sayyidina Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala whose name is remembered in every Jum'ah khutbah, in every dars of hadith, in every writing of fiqh, whose name is plastered throughout the Islamic legacy a beautiful decorative piece on every page of hadith 
عَنَ بُحْرَيْرَةَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ A child hears this before they even know what it means. Abu Hurairah is Yemeni from the tribe of Dos. He accepts Islam at the hands and as a result of the da'wah of Tufayl bin Amr al-Dawsi, who himself has a phenomenal story. He meets Rasulullah in the early days of Islam. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is early days of Islam. Tufayl bin Amr al-Dawsi meets Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He has this fascinating, phenomenal, intriguing interaction with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He's been told not to listen to the Prophet of Allah when he arrives in Mecca. Everyone says, the man's a magician, he will change you. He's sitting next to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. With cotton tucked away in his ears, so he doesn't even accidentally hear the Prophet's voice. Little did he know that through his da'wah, one of the greatest giants would take birth. So no cotton can stop what Taqdeer has already written. He's sitting near the Kaaba. The Prophet ﷺ is reciting Qur'an and the words penetrate and seep through the cotton into his ears. He is so touched by what he hears that he pulls out the cotton to hear the words of Rasulullah And moments later, he's saying, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. The Prophet sends him back to his people that you will go back to your tribe and you will invite you will invite them to Islam and stay put. He heads back to his community. Some accept, some don't accept. From the people who do accept is a young man without any child or any wife, with one mother who he is loyal and dedicated to. He accepts Islam. And then six years after migration, six years after migration, the tribe from those finally comes to Medina Munawwara to meet Rasulullah In that tribe was Abu Hurairah It was Fajr Salah time, so they joined in Fajr Salah. Leading them in prayer wasn't the Prophet of Allah Nabi wasn't leading prayer that Fajr. Rather, he prayed behind. فَصَلَّيْتُ الصُّبْحَ خَلْفَ ibn Urtufa. He prayed salah behind another companion of Rasulullah sallallahu Siba' bin Urtufa radiyallahu فَقَرَأَ فِي السَّجْدَةِ الْأُولَى بِسُورَةِ مَرْيَمْ وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ وَيْلٌ لِلْمُطَفِّفِينَ Everything is picture perfect. Every memory is intact. We prayed salah behind him. And in the first rakah, he prayed Surah Maryam. And in the second rakah, he recited Surah Mutaffifun. They were then informed that Rasulullah has gone with his companions on an expedition to Khaybar. So they continue their journey. And when he arrives in Khaybar, he lays eyes for the very first time on the beautiful face of Rasulullah. And he embraces the hands of Rasulullah and recites the testimony of Islam. Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah. 
his love for Rasulullah was so tense that in the presence of the Prophet of Allah, with access to the Prophet of Allah, he forgot the whole world. Forgot all of it. He himself says that I never saw a face that was as beautiful as the face of the Prophet of Allah before my Islam and after my Islam too. Years later he remembers, he says that when I saw the face of Rasulullah I would sit there and look at it and it was as if the moon, I'm sorry, the sun was reflecting off of Rasulullah How radiant and bright was Rasulullah Now that he's Muslim and he realizes he's older in age, he's in his 30s, he wants to make up for lost time. So he puts everything on hold in life and gives his day and night to Rasulullah No wife, no child, but he has a mother. His challenge in life is that he loves the Prophet of Allah so intensely, but his mother doesn't understand. She doesn't get what's going on here. I was speaking to um, some folks at the campus earlier this week. And um, there were two fathers. And I said to them that you both are a mercy on your children. Because you've sent your, student, your children to study with us. I interact with many students on campus whose parents are not in favor of them studying Islam. So whenever the chapter of Birrul Walidin comes up, obedience to their parents, I glance up to look at them and they're always covered in tears. Trying to understand how do they manage these relationships. On one side, their own parents are the barrier. And here you are facilitating everything in life. You've basically become a khadim for a talibul ilm. You're not just doing khidmah and taking care of your children, but you're doing it so the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a service to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam can be complete. How beautiful are you as parents? Every child makes dua that Allah blesses them with parents like this. Abu Hurairah had the opposite situation. His parents weren't in favor. Earlier today, there was a sister who came to meet me. A Hindu sister who accepted Islam. She says, how do I tell my parents that I'm Muslim? I asked her that if you tell them you're a Muslim, what do you think the consequences will be? She said that I'm almost certain they will disown me. And I also potentially fear physical harm. I said to her, there was a sister who met me some years back in Dallas. And she was crying. And I said, what happened? She said, Sheikh, what is the ruling of praying salah in the toilet, in the bathroom? It's an awkward question. Who wants to pray salah next to a commode? So she says to me that I am also a Hindu convert. And if my family find out that I'm Muslim, I fear repercussions. So the only place where I can pray Salah in peace is next to the toilet in the bathroom. I pray my Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, Isha there, and my Tahajjud Salah. I don't miss one Salah. I was so shocked by her statement. I said to her that it's possible that 
the sacrifice that you're making for every sajda of yours and everything that you know is at risk every time you worship Allah may hold more value than what we do in the front self. Allah knows best after that. How much a person sacrifices? She wakes up for the hajjud salah and prays it where? In the bathroom. And here, look at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all the opportunity He's given us. No one's stopping anyone here from praying salah. You can pray all you want to. But we unfortunately are enslaved by our nafs. Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu is stuck in this situation. What do I do? He keeps inviting his mother to Islam. And every time he invites her, she rejects. He invites her again, she rejects it. It's a tough situation for him. He narrates a story himself of what happened with his mother. The narration actually starts off in an interesting way. Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu once said to an individual, that there is not a person who believes in Allah and His Messenger, but he will love me. There's not a single Muslim out there, but he or she will love me. That person said, what kind of statement is this? Why do you say that? He says, well, let me tell you. My mother was not interested in Islam, and rather she hated it. Every time I invited her, she rejected me. And one day when I invited her to Islam, she went so far and got so carried away, she said some statements about Rasulullah that shattered my heart and I broke out into tears. I was angry and frustrated, I left the house. Nabi wasallam saw Abu Hurairah with tears in his eyes crying. He asked him, why are you crying? O Messenger of Allah, I'm crying out of grief. What are you grieving over? My mother said something about you that has hurt me so much. O Messenger of Allah, make dua to Allah that He guides the heart of my mother. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam raises his hands and makes dua to Allah. O oh Allah, guide the mother of Abu Hurairah He was so happy by this dua of Rasulullah And these people had such belief in every statement of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam that without waiting a moment, he rushes back home to give her glad tidings that she's about to become Muslim. The Prophet of Allah made dua, this is happening. So on his way home, he, he sees the door is slightly open. Right when he's about to enter, he hears some water falling from someone taking a shower. His mother says to him, stay where you are. I stood outside the house and I, my mother put her garments on and she gave me permission to enter. And when I entered, before I said even one word, she said, Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasulu. The people who serve the deen and those who sacrifice everything for the sake of Allah, be optimistic and know that Allah will take care of you. Sometimes marriage may be tough, sometimes business may, may, may not work out, sometimes your health takes a toll and you get a little lonely and think, Ya Allah, come on. A few drops, it's really dry here right now. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always take care of you. Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu's mother doesn't become Muslim because of his da'wah, 
Rather, she becomes Muslim from the dua of Rasulullah which was made for him specially because of the sacrifice that he made for the sake of the deen. And at that point, Abu Hurairah says, I ran back to Masjid al-Nabwi this time to go and share the good news with Rasulullah When I entered into the Masjid, I was crying. The Prophet said, why are you crying? He said, our Messenger of Allah, this time it's out of joy. My mother became Muslim. Abu Hurairah was family to Rasulullah He himself says that I was with the Prophet of Allah in Safar and in Hadr. When we traveled, I was with the Prophet when we went to Makkah Mukarramah for Umar or Hajj, I was with Rasulullah When we were in Medina Munawwara and the Prophet went out for a stroll to the markets, I was by the side of Nabi When he went to check up on a particular people in Medina, I was with him. When he walked over to Quba, I was with the Prophet When he went to, uh, um, to Uhud to visit the Shuhada there, Abu Huraira is there. When he entered into his home, Abu Huraira says, I would enter into his home with him as well. Such a close relationship. So the day he becomes Muslim, Nabi asked him, what's your name? He says, Abdu Shams. A name with shirk in it. The slave of the sun. Rasul said, you are Abdul Rahman. And from that day onwards, he is known as Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar, Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. Abu Huraira, Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar radiallahu ta'ala Regarding his exact name, there is an epic discussion among the muhaddithun. Um, if you go through the works of biography, you will find so many opinions there. Some scholars have listed over 20 opinions regarding his actual name. Ibn al-Jawzi lists over 12 of them. That these are the names that are uh, attributed to him. Out of them, the two most common ones, some muhaddithun went with Abdullah, and the second group of them said his name was Abdurrahman ibn Sakhr. And there are many riwayat to study to understand this. But his name wasn't what he was known by, he became known by Abu Huraira, the father of the kitten. Why did he get this name? Students of knowledge would have very deep sleeves. It was like a sack. You would put your scribes in there, put your books in there, put your pen in there, and then loop your sleeve through your finger, and now you had a little bit of a small compartment that you can hold things in. Abu Huraira would hold kittens there because of his love for cats. When people saw him, they said, he is Abu Huraira. And then on top of that, Rasulullah called him Abu Hir in the masculine form. So he loved that a lot too. Either someone called him Abu Hir or they called him Abu Huraira. He loved it so much that that's what he became exclusively known by right up till the point that people forgot his actual name. It wasn't even used among people anymore. Abu Huraira had... Um, the dua of Rasulullah with him. And the dua of Nabi for him was that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect knowledge in his heart. He narrates multiple incidents, and each of them are very beautiful. One of them where he says, I took my garment and put it on the ground, and Rasulullah made some dua for me, 
and as if he made a gesture that something was being poured in there. The Prophet of Allah told me to gather my garment. I gathered it and put it around me. And after that day, I never forgot anything again. In one place, in another narration, a person came to Zayd ibn Thabit to ask him a question. Zayd ibn Thabit a companion who we will dedicate a whole class to inshallah. A great companion of the Prophet Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam praised him for his intelligence. أَنَّ رَجُلًا جَاءَ إِلَى زَيْدِ بْنِ ثَابِتٍ فَسَأَلَهُ عَنْ شَيْءٍ فَقَالَ عَلَيْكَ بِأَبِي هُرَيْرَةٍ This giant and fountain of knowledge, Zayd bin Thabit radiallahu anhu, when asked a question, he defers to Abu Hurairah. He says to the questioner, ask Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu your question. فَإِنَّهُ بَيْنَا أَنَا وَهُوَ وَفُلَانٌ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ نَدْعُ خَرَجَ عَلِيْنَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمُ فَجَلَسَ قَالَ عُودُوا إِلَى مَا كُنْتُمْ One day, the reason why he told him to go to Abu Huraira, one day, three of us were sitting in the masjid. Myself, Abu Huraira, and a third person. A Rasul alayhi salatu wasalam entered the masjid, so naturally they got up and went to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. They sat around him. The adab of the sahaba was phenomenal. This idea of a senior being somewhere and everyone else is scattered, that's not, that's, this is foreign to the Sahaba. When the Prophet ﷺ entered into the masjid, at that time, bear in mind, he says, um, uh, nad'u. When the Prophet ﷺ entered into the masjid, we were busy making dua at that time. We left our dua and we turned our attention to the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ said to them, Udu ila ma kuntum. Go back to what you were doing. Qala Zayd, fada'utu ana wa sahibi. So my friend and myself, not Abu Hurairah, the two of us, we went back to where we were and we started making dua again. The awesome thing was, we were making dua out loud and the Prophet ﷺ started saying Ameen to our duas. So we knew we were in a golden moment. ثُمَّ دَعَى أَبُو هريرة. Then Abu Hurairah sat down and he started making dua. When he made dua, he said, Allahumma inni as'aluka mithla ma sa'alak. Oh Allah, give me whatever these two asked for so far. Wa as'aluka ilman la yunsa. And give me knowledge that will not be forgotten. Faqala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ameen. Faqulna, wa nahnu nas'alu Allah ilman la yunsa. So Zayd bin Thabit says, the two of us then made that same dua that Allah blesses with knowledge that will not be forgotten. فَقَالَ سَبَقَكُمَا بِهَا الدَّوْسِيُّ That this Yemeni man, he beat you in the dua, it's his, not yours. So Zayd bin Thabit now, when he is asked this question, he defers to Sayyidina Abu Hurairah that go to him. And this dua that he got from Rasulullah wasn't a result of someone giving him a free handout. He put the work into it. The Prophet saw the sacrifice. A parent, a teacher, a mentor sees in people the sacrifice they make. And it's through that sacrifice and through the khidmah that a person does again and again and again, non-stop, that you penetrate into the heart of someone and then in that moment, when that person makes dua from you from the depth of their heart, your life will change. That's where things begin to turn.
Abu Hurairah he says that I would roll between, fall between, stumble between the house of Aisha and the member of Rasulullah Couldn't walk straight. The member is here. The house is not too far away if you go to Majd al-Nabwi. Probably where that wall is. Not that far. And he said, I couldn't walk straight. I would stumble and fall and stumble and fall. People thought I had gone crazy. Wallahi, I was not crazy. I was just hungry. That's why I couldn't stand straight. When I was hungry and the pain would become intense, I would lie with my stomach on the ground, hoping that it would calm me down. Do we even know what hunger is? Do we know what involuntary hunger is? Involuntary, this is in the form of we don't have anything stored away in our fridge. When we fast, we know there's a pantry full of food, there's a freezer full of food. This is different. This is where you don't have anything. But it is voluntary from the perspective that he chose this. Abu Huraira in one narration, he said that you people say that Abu Huraira narrates too many hadith. Because bear in mind, he becomes Muslim, he accepts Islam in the sixth slash seventh year after migration. So his total years with Rasulullah wasallam, how many? Three to four years. And there are sahaba that have been with Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam for 23 years, 20 years, 15 years, 10 years, the whole Medina. And in comes Abu Hurair radiallahu an, and in three years, he now has captured a body of hadith that surpasses in narration all the other companions of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And the sahaba would rely on him. One time a person came to the gathering of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu an, the first host of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam upon his arrival to Medina, senior sahabi. And he heard Abu, he heard Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu an narrating hadith, biwasatati Abi Huraira. He wasn't narrating directly from the Prophet of Allah, but he said, I heard Abu Huraira who said the Prophet of Allah said. The person said to him, why don't you narrate directly from the Prophet of Allah? He said, this is safer and better for me. If I say I heard Rasulullah directly, it adds a level of accountability and responsibility. Saying that Abu Hurairah narrated it relieves me of the pressure of attributing a single letter to Rasulullah. The Sahaba referred to him. He says that you people say I narrate too many hadith. Let me tell you how this happened. While the Muhajirun were busy working in the markets, and while the Ansar were busy in their fields. I was busy with Rasulullah No day, no night, it made no difference. The sacrifice that he put into studying the deen, he put everything in life on hold. He says himself, that one time I was so hungry, that I stood on the path, waiting for someone to pass by. And as those people would pass by, I would engage them with questions about the Qur'an, simply hoping they would invite me for food. In one riwayah, he goes into more detail, where he says that I was standing on the path and Sayyidina Umar was passing by. So I asked him a question about something religious. And I wasn't so interested in the question as much as I was hoping that he would see my state and invite me for food. But the situation was such that the Sahaba collectively struggled. Umar radiallahu anh passed by, didn't get anything out of there. 
Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu was passing by. I approached him, asked him another question or two, hoping that he would invite me for a meal. Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu didn't. You guys ever been in a situation like this? Where you're so broke and so desperate that you need something and you're hoping the person in front of you invites you or says something and they don't. When we were students in England, our madrasa was on, a, there was a massive hill. I mean, somewhat like a mountain to be honest with you, but I think it was categorically a hill. So in order to go to a nearby city, or if you wanted to go anywhere else, you had to walk all the way down. That in itself, the walk down from there to the village that we were in could take around 15 minutes, just the walk down. It was very far. Then when you made it to the bottom, there was a pub there. And um, rowdy people, always drunk, specifically if there was a soccer game going on, then it was violent as well. Across the street from the pub, there was a bus stand there. So sometimes we would wait in the bus stand for hours for our bus to come so we can just go and listen to the dars of our sheikh who was in the next town over in Bury. England's notorious for rain. So you'd be standing there soaked because you had to walk in the rain 15 minutes down, literally soaked, right? And don't ask me why we didn't just buy an umbrella. I don't know. I look back at my life and I ask myself a lot of questions. Why don't I just buy a raincoat? I could have done that too. I could have invested some money in a bike. I could have bought... But I don't know, we didn't do any of that. We were young, 13, 14 years old. We wanted to go to the Sheikh's Dar, so we would walk all the way down, get soaked and stand at the bus stand. Four or five of us would go together. We'd be standing at the bus stand. And I kid you not, I used to look at every car that drove by, specifically the cabs. A lot of the Muslims used to drive cabs there. So when they would drive by, I used to think to myself, I hope this guy sees us and stops and gives us a ride. And on the very few occasions where someone did stop, you felt like your dua was accepted and so happy, so excited, just that Alhamdulillah someone gave me a ride today. This is a small nothing from our lives. Imagine Abu Huraira radiallahu who can't stand straight. So while he's waiting for an opportunity, the next person that passes by him is Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Before he even asks his, his cover question to lead into the conversation, Rasulullah gestures to him, it's okay. I see what's going on. Just come with me. He follows Rasulullah. They enter into the Prophet's home. There is a bowl of milk there. Rasulullah asked his family members, Where did this milk come from? They said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, it came from so and so person. They gifted it. Abu Hurairah can't see anything other than the milk. His eyes are locked. The Prophet says to him, Abu Hurairah, there are some students, Ashab Sufa. They spend their entire day studying the deen, they must be hungry. Go and invite them. Abu Hurairah on the way there was frustrated. In his own words, I thought to myself that if I invite those people, they're gonna drink the milk. Those guys are all dormmates, I know those guys. They're all hungry people. They're not going to leave anything for me. 
he arrives in the masjid and says, guys, the Prophet's calling you guys. <laughs> Everyone here, the Prophet's calling you. What? The Prophet is calling everyone. What for? There's milk. What? They all got up. Let's go. Langar. So they all got up and they start, they head over to the Prophet's home. Everyone arrives, they take their seat. Now, Abu Hurairah says to make things even more complicated. I was already struggling with the reality that I wouldn't get a sip now, or barely a sip. The Prophet says to me, Abu Huraira, take the bowl and offer it to each person one by one with your own hands. You can imagine with each sip, the dagger is twisted and it's turned again. Everyone drinks. Miraculously, the milk isn't finished. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam smiled and looked at Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. Baqitu anta wa ana. There's two of us left now. You and I. He says, A Messenger of Allah, you are right. There are two people left. Rasul said to him, Ishra, read, drink. I drank. I took a pause. Courtesy, the Prophet hasn't drank it. Ishra, drink more. I drank more. And I drank more. Until. He said to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, O Messenger of Allah, there is no space left for me to drink. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa then smiled, took the bowl and finished it off. This was his journey. This was his story. The sacrifice involved in studying the deen. And to be honest with you, I don't find this uh, far-fetched at all. I've seen young children who've memorized the Qur'an in a few weeks, in a, sorry, a few weeks we have those historical documents, I haven't seen that myself. But what I have seen is people memorize the Qur'an in less than a year. I had a, a friend, a very close childhood friend, who had memorized the entire Qur'an from beginning to end in eight months. At the time, when we were friends, he was already hafid. And we were friends at maybe 11 years age. So he must have done it when he was eight or nine years old. In eight months. And he was a very intense person. Three days after he memorized the entire Qur'an, he read the whole Qur'an in one majlis to his shaykh. He read the whole Qur'an in one day, off by heart, by his memory. Three days after he memorized it. This is not some kacha paka hafiz. This is paka paka hafiz. Like, this guy really knew his stuff. Intense person, very intense. This last week I was in Philadelphia. It was a conference there, the Muna conference. When I first got invited to this conference, I didn't know what to expect. I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a fun experience. I haven't gone to Philly in a while. And I, I, I like going to Philly because not too far from there is where my sheikh, who I memorized the Quran with, he lives there. He's very old. So I thought, you know what, we'll go to the conference and then I'll take some time and go visit him. Alhamdulillah, I had the opportunity to meet him. He's very old now. He was telling me stories. Because I remember when he arrived in America, the first day he arrived, he had nothing. Like naturally, there was no bed, no house, nothing. He told me that his salary was $800 a month. I didn't know this until this two days ago when he told me this. 
He said, you don't know how hard my life was then. He's sitting in a house right now that his children bought. So, that, bought. so that's what he was boasting over. He said, Alhamdulillah, look at my house now. And I said, Hazrat, it looks beautiful. He goes, Kabi khabni I never saw a dream that I would sit in a house like this. When I was teaching you guys, I got paid $800 a month, out of which $500 I gave for rent. So with four children, I had $300 left. The gas bill came out, gas electricity came out to $200. So I had $100 left, and I would give my children $5 each, give my wife $10. And then, you know, the $70 that was left, I would spend it on the family throughout the month. And I was forced to leave the madrasa when my uh, electricity bill went up. Because I couldn't afford to live there anymore, so then I left there. I asked him, how did you get here? How did you go from that to this? He said, um... It must have been the du'as of all the students that did hifd with me. There's no other way otherwise. There's no other explanation to how this happened. That all their du'as, we're just leaning on their du'as. One of my good friends and colleagues, Mufti Muntasir, is also his student. We studied by the same hifd teacher actually, coincidentally. Probably a decade apart. So he was then boasting over him and saying, Oh, you know my student Mufti Muntasir? I said, of course I do. Give him my salam. Mufti Muntasir is terrified of him, by the way. I would be as well. One year, Mufti Muntasir, I don't know what he was thinking. He's a very intelligent person. Thought it was a wise idea to lead Taraweeh with Marna Abdul Samad. And Marna Abdul Samad, our Sheikh, he's a sniper. You make one tiny mistake of Potentially, even if a waham came to your mind of reading it wrong, he'd correct you, like in your thoughts. That eh. he was a guy that when he would lead salah in the madrasa, instead of reading like Amal Rasul or reading like you know, uh, uh, la ilaha illahu or reading Juz Amma, he would like I don't know. It was a constant like, Yusiyukumullahu fi awlatikum. For those of you that are hafid or know. It's one of the toughest passages. That's where he would start his Maghrib Salah. Right there. يُسِيكُمْ اللَّهُ Like this is the part where Hufal tried to skip in Taraweeh. This is where his Maghrib and Isha would start. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prolong his life and give him barakah as well. Studying with him was hard, man. He beat the pulp out of me. I'm not gonna lie to you guys. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevate him in the dunya. The brother that was with me, he says to him, Mufti Hussein ko mene bhot mara hai. He says to him, he said, this guy right here, I beat this guy into bits. So I nodded my head. This is true. Sadaq the Sheikh, he spoke the truth. I mean, I'd love to share his story and um, my relationship with him, but we have a greater story here to share, so we'll put that on pause. I have to just say that hitting anyone for the memorization of the Qur'an is not permitted in Islam. It's not okay. Hitting children specifically is a double violation. Slapping them on the face is a triple violation. 
I have no blame against my sheikh because he knew how stubborn I was. So I have no blame against him at all. The truth is without his strictness, the probability of a dud like me memorizing the Qur'an was right at zero. Right? But to the Hibs teachers that hear our voice and um, who can hear this, be compassionate with students of knowledge. Be kind and loving to them. Treat them as guests of Allah and His Rasul You do not have the right to be a teacher if you don't make dua for your students. If you don't send food for them, if you don't take care of them. When their hearts, their minds will open up. The mind and the body parts follow the heart. The task of the teacher is to win the heart first. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevate all the teachers of the Qur'an wherever they are and make all their teaching a jariyah. So you look at Abu Huraira who memorized so much hadith. People that say, how did he memorize so much hadith? If a child, if a 9-year-old, 8-year-old, 10-year-old without that special dua of Rasulullah can memorize hundreds of pages of the Qur'an with mediocre effort. You guys see where I'm going with this? then how is it unfathomable to see Abu Hurairah make his day and night one thing and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not give it to him after he received the dua of Rasulullah on top of all of that. It's, and if this is even, you know, if you're still struggling, go look at someone who's preparing for the, for the bar test. Go look, at for some, look, go look at someone who's preparing for their MCAT. In two years, how much content do they retain? Just... Hundreds of pages of content is downloaded onto the, into their memory because they have a big task in front of them. Abu Huraira he narrated hadith all through, after Rasulullah passed away, he becomes a top narrator of hadith. And for the students here, Many of Abu Hurairah's riwayat are bilwasta, and he does tadlis. But a tadlis of a sahabi is absolutely accepted by the muhaddithun. So therefore, it is considered as one of his narrations. He continues to narrate hadith. He says that there was no person among the sahaba that had as many hadith as I had down, except for Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As فَإِنَّهُ يَكْتُبْ وَلَا أَكْتُبْ because in the gathering of the Prophet ﷺ, he used to actually write hadith. I never wrote hadith, I used to listen to the Prophet of Allah and memorize it. He was known for his narrating of hadith. Now during the Khilafah of Umar ibn Khattab Umar had a stance. And his position was, he did not like people abundantly narrating from Rasulullah when someone kept saying, Qala Rasulullah, Qala Rasulullah, Qala Rasulullah, Qala Rasulullah, this made Umar uncomfortable. He would hold him accountable. Not just one Sahabi, you can find many narrations like this from the senior and junior companions. Abu Musa al-Ashari is well known in Sahih Muslim. And then you have Abu Huraira's interactions with him and other Sahaba as well. So he put a pause to this. Now why is it that Abu Hurairah was so particular and had an iron fist when it came to abundantly narrating hadith? There are, there are multiple answers. One of the answers some of the hadithun give is because 
Quran was still being documented and they wanted to ensure that there was a differentiation between Qala Allah and Qala Rasul. That there is no mixing between the two. Another thing is that Umar wanted people to know that there is accountability when you say the statement the Prophet of Allah said. That you will be held accountable. So don't just take it as a light matter and just go on and keep blabbing and blabbing and blabbing and talking about the deen without taking what you're doing very delicately and seriously. Abu Huraira says, إِنِّي لَأُحَدِّثُ أَحَادِيثَ لَوْ تَكَلَّمْتُ بِهَا فِي زَمَنِ عُمَرَ لَشَجَّ رَأْسِهِ And if Umar saw me narrating hadith the way I do today, I'd be in trouble. He'd come after me. If this is how the Sahaba treated narrating hadith and sharing opinions regarding the deen, when dealing with fellow Sahaba, who they knew were trustworthy people, and there was never an accusation made towards a Sahabi that this person lied when narrating from Rasulullah Because they are adul, they are upright, just people. The Sahaba do not lie when attributing to the Prophet of Allah. When attributing to the Prophet of Allah. If, this is the, if this is the situation that we see at that time, that they were so particular and they held people accountable, then what about when we turn to our situation? We turn to our community. In which people narrate left, right, up and down to the Prophet of Allah and they criticize the deen and they have hot takes about religious matters without any consideration at all. And at the center of everything they're saying, it's batil anyway, it's falsehood. Fabricating while knowing that they're attributing a false statement to Abu Huraira or to Rasulullah through the Sahaba, or through Abu Bakr Siddiq or Umar any of these Sahaba. They're attributing false statements to the Sahaba, and then from there, false statements to Rasulullah If anything, from the story of Abu Huraira we learn the importance of how delicate we must be when it comes to preserving the deen. The surgeon's hand can't shake, it has to be stable. They need to believe in what they're doing. Such is the hand of the muhaddith in the da'i of the deen. It can't be shaking. For students of knowledge, when you find yourself, if you find yourself on the mimbar giving lectures, don't regurgitate what you heard from your teachers. They are trustworthy people. There's no criticism there. They are upright people. There's no criticism there. But as a student of knowledge, you have a responsibility to be a student and go back to the sources. If you heard a shaykh narrating a hadith, go back to its reference point. Go back to where it came from. If you hear a teacher narrating a story, go and find that story. This is what you owe to yourself and the loyalty you should have to your teachers. The matter of the deen is very serious. So now, Abu Huraira one time Marwan, uh, who was in charge uh, uh, for periods also over Medina, he calls Abu Huraira and he's also skeptical of Abu Huraira narrating so many hadith. Abu Huraira was also approached by Aisha, Umar, and also this Marwan. Marwan says to Abu Huraira that I want you to narrate some hadith. The narrator of this incident is Abu Zu'ayzi'ah. 
حدثني أبو زعيزعة كاتب مروان who was a scribe of مروان أن مروان أرسل إلى أبي هريرة فجعل يسأله فأجلسني خلف السرير He was asking Abu Hurairah regarding some narrations while I was tucked away hidden Abu Hurairah had no idea I was there writing down every hadith he said The gathering ended Abu Hurairah heads back home Just another interaction حَتَّى إِذَا كَانَ رَأْسُ الْحَوْلِ One year later دَعَا إِلَيْهِ He called Abu Hurairah again And then he told me to sit behind فَأَقَعَدَنِي مِنْ وَرَاءِ الْحِجَابِ He told me to sit hidden again And then he said to him Narrate to me everything you narrated one year ago Abu Hurairah narrates it in the exact same tartib In the exact same fashion and Abu Zu'aizia is sitting there comparing the two. Such was the flawless memory of Abu Hurairah His maqam, his rank, the famous muhaddith. Uh, Abu Sa'id al-Sam'ani He was a scholar and also a muhaddith He says that I heard from Abu Ma'mar Al-Mubarak bin Ahmad Who heard from Abu Qasim Yusuf bin Ali al-Zanjani al-Faqih Sami'atu al-Faqih Aba Ishaq al-Fayruzabadi Sami'atu Qadi Abu Tayyib Yaqul I shared these names for a reason because Imam Dhahabi narrates this sanad, this chain before the narration, and then at the end of it he says, Every one of these people in this chain for this incident that I'm about to share with you are all great scholars of their era. They were all great people. They say what happened was, Kunna fi majlis One day a group of scholars had gathered together in the masjid, and they were in discussion and debate regarding issues. فَجَاءَ شَابٌ خُرَاسَانِي A Khurasani young man entered, in the, entered the gathering. فَسَأَلَ عَنْ, عن مَسْأَلَةِ الْمُسَرَّاتِ He asked regarding the Mas'ala of Musarrat. Mas'alatul Musarrat is an issue that's discussed in, uh, in the chapter of Buyur. It's about gharr. That if a person sells an animal, and in order to attract the attention of buyers, what he does is that he doesn't milk his animals for a few days, allowing the udders to fill up. So when the buyer passes by, he's gonna see that, man, this guy's selling a animal and the udders are this full? That means this milk, this animal must provide a lot of milk. So he buys it. This idea of not milking the animal when it needs to be milked and cheating by a false presentation is called Mas'alatul Musarrat. Now the question is that if the transaction occurs, and that person later on finds out that he, that guy duped me, the, the animal does not provide that much milk. He cheated me. Can he reverse the transaction or not? On one side you have the Jamhur, a large group of scholars who say yes, he can. And on the other side, with, a, with some conditions by the way, with, you know, with, with some conditions. And on the other hand, you have the Hanafis, 
They say the transaction cannot be reversed because the ayn was sahih. He was selling an animal, that's the animal right there. Now, for the deception, because there is an ayb in the animal, what you can do is find out what the market value decrease would be. And then get that money back, but the transaction is complete. The scholars who say that the transaction can be reversed, they rely on a narration of Abu Hurairah So that's the backdrop. You guys catch the backdrop? The masala and the issue? So now let's come back to the narration. فَسَأَلَ عَنْ مَسْأَلَةِ الْمُسَرَّاتِ فَطَالَبَ بِالدَّلِيلِ حَتَّى إِسْتَدَلَّ بِحَدِيثِ أَبِي هُرَيْرَةِ الْوَارِدِ فِيهَا فَقَالَ وَكَانَ حَنَفِيًّا أَبُو هُرَيْرَةِ غَيْرُ مَقْبُولِ الْحَدِيثِ I don't want to translate all that. The guy said, give me proof. They were going back and forth. One guy quoted the hadith of Abu Hurairah This Khurasani guy, who coincidentally was Hanafi, he says, <laughs> he says, Oh, we don't accept the narration of Abu Hurairah in this regard. He just discarded Abu Hurairah فَمَا إِسْتَتَمَّ كَلَامَهُ He didn't even finish what he was saying. حَتَّى سَقَطَ عَلَيْهِ حَيَّةٌ عَظِيمَةٌ مِنْ سَقْفِ الْجَامِعِ he didn't even finish his statement, and a massive serpent snake fell from the roof of the masjid and began to chase him. Everyone started jumping. This guy's is lagging it, he's running full speed. That snake is chasing him. People said, buddy, do tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for what you said regarding Abu Hurairah. They said that he said, Atub, I turn to Allah, I ask Allah for forgiveness. What I said regarding Abu Hurairah the snake disappeared, they went to search for it, it was nowhere to be seen. Imam Dhahabi, after narrating this, he says, Isnaduha, Isnaduha, a'imma. That all the people in this chain narrating this hadith were scholars of hadith. قال أبو القاسم النحاس سمعت أبا بكر بن أبي داود يقول رأيت في النوم وأنا بسجستان أصنف حديث أبي هريرة أبو بكر بن أبي داود said I was sitting in Sajistan writing hadith I was compiling the narrations of Abu Hurairah رضي الله عنه رأيت في النوم أبا هريرة in my dream I saw Abu Hurairah رضي الله عنه he was writing a book on Abu Hurairah رضي الله عنه one night while he was sleeping he saw him in the dream فَقُلْتُ لَهُ إِنِّي أُحِبُّكَ I said to him, I dearly love you. فَقَالَ أَنَا أَوَّلُ صَاحِبَ حَدِيثِ كَانَ فِي الدُّنْيَا Abu Hurairah says, I was the first muhaddith. I was the first one to dedicate my life to compiling the narrations of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. During the Khilafah of Umar عنه, he sent Abu Hurairah as a governor over Bahrain. When Abu Hurairah came back from there, he had much more money than what he went with. Umar had a policy. If any of his governors came back with more money than what, he, what they went with, what did he do? He took the rest of it away. And he put it in Baytul Mal. That the money that you earn extra, we didn't send you to earn money. This has to go back to the people. So after that, Abu Hurairah did avoided taking positions 
in, uh, in govern. During the Khilafah of Uthman an, he was known for teaching hadith abundantly and frequently. Um, before the Jum'ah khutbah, before the, member, the Amir or the Khalifa would come to deliver the khutbah, when the people would gather in Masjid al-Nabwi, Abu Hurairah would stand at the front of the masjid. And he would read hadith to the people until the Imam came. Such was his love for the hadith of Rasulullah One day he was sitting with the Prophet of Allah and he said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, who is most deserving of your intercession on the Day of Judgment? Nabi Wasallam said, I knew that you would be the one to ask this question. The one that's most worthy of my intercession on the Day of Judgment is the one who sincerely says, La ilaha illallah. A person who without any distraction, absolute focus on their heart, they say, La ilaha illallah, that person will be the most deserving of my intercession on the Day of Judgment. It was in the same year that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha passed away, that Abu Hurair radiallahu anha also became sick. And in his illness, Marwan came to visit him, the, the Khalifa. When he came to him, he made dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him shifa. May Allah grant him shifa. Abu Hurairah in response said, Oh Allah, I love to meet you. So love to meet me too. Abu Hurairah on his deathbed was seen crying. Someone said, why are you crying? He said, I'm not crying because of the dunya that I am leaving. وَلَكِنْ أَبْكِي لِبُعْدِ السَّفَرِ وَقِلَّةِ الزَّادِ Ah, the journey ahead of me is long and I haven't prepared enough. The muhaddith, the legend, his state. وَلَكِنْ أَبْكِي لِبُعْدِ السَّفَرِ وَقِلَّةِ الزَّادِ وَلَقَدْ وَقَفْتُ فِي نِهَايَةِ طَرِيقٍ يُفْذِي بِي إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ أو النار وَلَا أَدْرِي فِي أَيِّهِمَا أَكُمْ I have come to a, a fork in the road that either I will end up in the fire of hell or in Jannah. And I don't know which one it will be. Marwan stands from the gathering and as he's leaving, before he even exits the house, فَمَا فَارَقَ حَتَّى فَارَقَ الْحَيَاتِ Sayyidina Abu Hurairah passed away. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevate the maqam of Abu Hurairah May Allah reward him for his selflessness, for the sacrifice he made as an individual, for us to be able to connect with Rasulullah If Abu Hurairah wasn't hungry, if Abu Huraira wasn't alone at that point, he chose to not be married. Later on, he did get married. He did have children. But at that point, when Rasulullah was alive, no wife, no children. He chose this. He knew that without him making the sacrifice, Islam wouldn't have the statements of Rasulullah How would Muslims learn? 
how would it be preserved? So he dedicated his life to it and spent every moment of it just serving the deen. May Allah give us the tawfiq to live lives like them. May we also dedicate our lives to serving the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and make us khadims of hadith and the legacy of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. These are the people that we come from. Be like your forefathers. Be like these legends. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.